Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about the politics of the pay gap in the BBC. The rise of the woke right. <laughs> yeah, that was a great phrase. And also we talk about our best summer reading recommendations. Non-fiction this week. Let's talk about um, the gen- well. Let's talk about the gender pay gap first of all. I think when the BBC did its pre-briefing of the star salary stories, it did some great crisis communication, right? Because they were probably quite happy to talk about the gender pay gap because the basis it's something you can point to to say we've inherited all these institutional problems. Like John Humphreys has been there since 1873, and it's something that we're doing something about, right? That's the kind of conversation I feel like the BBC wanted to have rather than the conversation which will, will never be turned into, which is how many nurses are there to a Gary Lineker. Yeah, I mean, I think the the salary pay gap is quite this interesting and disturbing trend of the rise of, like, the woke right. You know, where they've started to do this thing where they go, oh, but doesn't the left care about the gender pay gap? Or this whole new meme of Philip Hammond yeah. said something sexist. Do you know who's not sexist, apparently? David Davis. Um, and this, like, new thing of effectively the right going, but I thought you cared about this. And it's like, well, I do care about the gender pay gap in the, in the BBC, but I will care about it at a time than I choose, rather than when the male briefly decides that it cares about... But they've learned it from internet MRAs, right? Um, I wrote a thing about ages ago about how this was the kind of the dying cat strategy, which is a set version of Linton Crosby's dead cat strategy, i.e. throwing a dead cat on the table so everyone talks about your dead cat. You throw a dying cat on the table, which is actually something that is a bad thing, that is in distress, that does merit being talked about. It's just not the thing you were talking about right now. And basically, as a you know, online, somebody who's talked about feminism online for the last few years, you could be talking about literally anything in the world, and people go ah but what about fgm and except the times when you were talking about fgm where those people were mysteriously absent and and that's basically what's kind of happened with the with the philip hammond thing right it's just a kind of why why, why won't you condemn this and you like well i'm not a pez dispenser of condemnation assume that i think all sexism is bad but also that i don't have to like but also you like activated to minor tiny reported comments that philip hammond may or may not have said but also i think the thing is it's like we like it's I think everyone knows on the form we're being played, right? And the whole pay gap thing, the Hammond thing, it's all about attempting to leverage. Uh, and obviously, there is a problem with the with the gender pay gap. And I think some of the yeah, there are there are lots of fairly obvious examples of people you look at and you go, well, I don't, I can see the argument why you're both worth a lot of money in terms of what view of your your viewing ability. And the thing I really learned when I was doing my Corbyn documentary, which you can still watch on YouTube, is actually things like talking to camera when traffic is going 
is quite difficult. Uh, and so there, there did are. Did you have to do any walking and talking? I that did. is surprisingly hard. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and so there are lots of things where you kind of go, well, I can see why you're worth this amount of money. So, for example, I can Doing see why. Doing a chat he, show, I think, is the hardest yeah. one, right? Because you get the producer in your ear telling you to do stuff. You're trying to ask them the question, trying to think of the next question, and also trying to react by pretending that you're listening to whatever t- tedious anecdote from the set of Mission Impossible it is that they're telling you right now. Yeah. And I think I can, I can, so I can see the argument why Hugh Edwards is worth the amount that he is being paid. I cannot see the argument why Fiona Bruce is worth a lot of money, but not as much money. And I'm afraid I cannot see the argument that Alan Shearer is worth any money uh, whatsoever. But um, I, the one that really stands out for me is Nick Knowles, who presents DIY SOS. And I mean, fine, fine, right? But he's on a lot of money. I mean, so he's on, I think, three, in the 350 to 399 band, whereas someone like Jeremy Bowen, who occasionally writes the New Statesman, is in the 150 to 199 band. And you think, Jeremy Bowen got shot in the head. Like, he will go to, you know, yeah. Syria. Send Nick Knowles to Syria and we can come back and discuss whether or not he's worth that extra 200k. But of course, I mean, the thing is, it is, it is all, of course, about a way for the right to damage and attack the BBC. I think the interesting question is, will it work? My instinct is it won't because, and this is, you know, this is probably a very thin anecdotal base to draw this impression from. But my two anecdotal reasons for thinking it won't work is I think people think people they see on TV are like loaded anyway. People are more surprised, I think, when people they see on TV like use the bus, yeah. right? I mean, even, you know, you and I are like what? I mean, like maybe U listers, V listers. Yeah. But people are sort of surprised that you're like, I in Tesco. I think of ourselves as BA listeners, like <laughs> the second alphabet, but right at the top of it. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. Know what I mean, they'll be literally like, well, what are you doing in Tesco? And you're like, because I buy food here. And they're like, but I've seen you on the te- television. Yeah. So when I did uh, the Mar show last weekend, I was, I was, I, I got out of the, the car and this woman who's walking her child stopped me and she was like, oh, do you live in this block of flats? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, but I've just seen you on the Mar program. And I just wanted to be like, yeah. That was then. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes. And she was like, and you live in this block. And I was like, and then weirdly, I got really defensive. I was like, my flat's really nice in a really weirdly <laughs> high-pitched voice. But I my, have vases. Yeah. And so my that's my one anecdotal reason for thinking I think people think people on TV are loaded anyway. And it, therefore, it will not surprise or anger people. The other reason is a long time ago at my in-laws, who as podcast listeners sadly are very bored of hearing, live in the Midlands and are very much kind of like, you know, like, a stereotypical swing voters. Like, at the moment, I knew Ed Balls. I was... so thought you said stereotypical swingers then. That would be a whole other podcast. <laughs> the moment I knew that Ed Balls was still doomed uh, was when uh, we went to visit them and they were talking about Strictly and we were like, oh, Ed Balls. Now, like, yeah, he's disgracing his office. We're all voting for Judge. Rinder? Judge Rinder, Rinder yeah. yeah. But they but they they asked me, literally asked me, which one do you prefer doing? And I was like, I prefer doing the Sky Paper review to the to the BBC review. And I was lucky to leave alive. Um there I is an incredible affection for with my yeah. mum where she believes that if I've been on like on the BBC that's you know, that's real. That's yeah. like that's you've got like a, it's the one time she will concede that I I like unlike my brother and sister who are doctors and one of the other ones an accountant. You know, I've actually at that point got a real job. Whereas I think she thinks I spend the rest of the time I don't know snorting cocaine off typewriters or something that probably journalists unfortunately haven't done for thirty years. I think that the the mistake that people on the right are making in believing they can instrumentalise this to attack the BBC is one people think people on TV are earning loads of money anyway, so they're not shocked. Two, and you see this in polling, you see it anecdotally, you see it, people 
in the main really like the BBC and the bits of it they don't like that people's objection to say Laura Kunzberg 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 I'm not Scottish Look, I have spent my whole life with people struggling to mispronounce my my middle name, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that back at the Scottish as well. But the people don't object to how much she's paid; they object to the fact that they feel that fairly unfairly they feel that she is uh, you biased, know, either biased. wildly to the right or wildly yeah. to the left, depending on their yeah. Ditto. My objection to Alan Shearer, Shearer and uh, Mark Lawrenson is not that they are paid more than the Prime Minister. It's that I think they're both rubbish pundits. Whereas, like Gary Lineker, the only Spurs player, and it's acceptable to like. I think they should pay him more. Can I ask why Alan Hansen retired? Because he still seemed very young when he retired. Maybe he retired because he was rubbish. I mean, like, you know, but this thing is just my, my objection to match of the day is that they they give a great deal of money to Liverpool players who who do not, I would say, do great analysis of of of, of matches. And I would much rather they paid that money for you know someone like Jonathan Wilson. Do you know what really cheered me up? That both Matt Baker and Alex Jones of the One Show are in the same pay band. So, yet more reason for my love of the One Show. I've forgotten how obsessed you are with the One Show. The egalitarian paradise that is the One Show. I suspect one of the reasons for the gender pay gap, as well as, you know, misogyny, is that it's clearly easier for the BBC to defend paying large amounts of money to, for example, Graham Norton, than it is to for them to defend paying large amounts of money because if you look at people like graham norton and then look at the people who first discovered them on tv many of whom started at the bbc they're not at the bbc anymore they might be at bbc worldwide they might be a third party company or they've gone to a commercial rival because it turns out it is easier to justify paying top whack for the cast of doctor who than it is for the people who helped revive doctor who in the 21st century and the interesting thing is until uh, jodie whittaker the main cast of doctor who has obviously been a bloke who is the person who helped revive it and probably did more for it even than Russell T. Davis, Julie Gardner, a woman. And I suspect part of the gender pay gap is it's still quite easy to bash producers, middle managers, you know, the same way we like honk on and on about, oh, there are too many middle managers in the NHS, but simultaneously complain rightly that doctors have to deal with too much paperwork. Yeah, but also I think there's a lot of, um, and you did, you, some people who weren't on that list but definitely would have been people like uh, the Dimblebees, for example, who paid through, uh, well, David Dimblebees paid through Mentorn, which is Question Time's production company. Or I'm sure there are loads of other people who, and actually Graham Norton was on for his radio work but not for his chat show work because that's paid through his, his production company, right? Mm. But I just think there are quite a lot of, there are more really, really established men. Um, I, looking at the Today presenters that was the kind of cuckoo one is that john humphreys is on 600 but and- what, i mean what is the i mean this is the thing again with john humphreys like i don't care how much he's paid he would be being paid too much to sit there being like are you really british though mate well right. I just feel like really for 600,000 plus a year he could bother to read or research any of the subjects he's asking people on. I do I am I'm sure I've told this story before but I went on once to talk about Grand Theft Auto and actually it was weirdly they got me into the studio and then I think it was Justin Webb was talking oh, to me Grand down Theft the line. Auto. How did you get to TV to discuss that daddy o did you <laughs> did you take like the chariot like <laughs> Right. Um, no one hate. No one likes you, millennial. Um, but yeah, and then at literally the end of this interview, in which had been obviously all about Grand Theft, like, oh, why do you like? Why do you like killing people, Helen? You monster. John Humphreys then chipped in at literally. I mean, almost word for word said, "I don't see what's wrong with playing chess." And then they moved on to the next item, and he was like. It's like, I just think, uh, yeah, imagine him ending uh, any other interview in any other art form about that. And so, you know, they, he's going to get a lot less sympathy now when people realise that what his hourly rate is for, like, tutting at people. 
But yeah, I think uh, I agree with you about the rise of the woke right. There is a kind of huge instrumentalization of um, social issues, which is a kind of, I guess, we have to appreciate as an improvement, right? There used to be a time when the right didn't pretend to care about sexism. It just used to straightforwardly attack in sexist ways. Now it's decided that it's, it's cleverer to sort of spend all its time demanding that the left condemn sexism in various ways. It's decided to kind of weaponize. It's true. What a time to be alive. It's beautiful. It's our ultimate triumph. So the recess is coming. Recess is coming. You know when you like you bump into someone in, in Westminster and they go like, we should have a drink before recess, and then you realise you've got to the last day, and so I've like had... Have you had alcohol? No, maybe. <laughs> you can't prove anything. Um, How exciting. Um, well, let's talk about books. Let's talk about some of our um, summer readings. So... Uh, to prove exactly how out of touch I am, um, two years ago it was my honeymoon and we went on um, a holiday to France and I sat in a shed and for some reason decided this was the prime time to read The Unfinished Revolution by Philip Gould. And I was like, well, actually, you know, some of the really founding insights of New Labour is probably the kind of thing that the Labour Party really needs to go back to now. And uh, that turned out to be wrong. But nonetheless, I think it's a really interesting book. So I would definitely put it on... um, anyone's kind of summer reading list if you want some wonkery do you have any recommendations about what things you think people should read yeah i mean i also think um i mean actually i think the unfinished revolution is quite interesting actually the most interesting thing i think is the forward by um by blessed toblerone, by the blessed toblerone. um because the thing is is about to depressingly everything tony blair wrote in that 2010 period is if you like tony blair you'll just enjoy it in a sort of straight up way if you don't like tony blair you can have quite good fun trolling the fact that everything Tony Blair says then is quite good advice about how you should win over your party, how to communicate to voters who aren't currently with you. Basically, everything he has, every intervention he has made just since 2010, yeah. you can do a screen grab of a bit of his forward to the Unfinished Revolution or the end bit of the journey and what he's done and go, uh thinking face emoji and so it's one of those things where i mean you know so actually you know like you say then it was shown to be out of touch but actually um lots of people want you know someone in the leader's office did sort of say, you know said to me that they'd actually been reading the unfinished revolution recently and they said i think the end bit where they kind of talk about how like great it was being ministers is, has not aged well but they think the kind of fundamental truths in the kind of look here are the rules of campaigning you know like about having your message has actually aged incredibly well and i think that's true mine is talking to a brick wall by deborah mattinson who did uh, focus groups for john smith blair and most uh, most of all gordon brown uh, i think it's a really good good read partly because of weirdly the things in it that have changed and the things in it which have not changed and they are both quite satisfying and also the fascinating stuff the is both surprising but also in reflection makes sense. So, for example, the moment when people start to turn against New Labour in the focus groups is not Iraq, it's actually earlier than that, it's the Dome. Oh. Uh, people were really angry about the Dome. They were like, why It was you? a real boondoggle, that Dome. You think the Garden Bridge was a waste of money. Yeah. What about the Dome? And it's also a really good example of how uh, and again, the DUP deal is kind of the, the modern-day equivalent of that. The DUP deal is no money at all in terms of what the government spends. It could not meaningfully end austerity or fix the NHS. Neither could the Dome. But it, again, people now, you hear it on local radio, you hear it in, on, on talkings, people have this sense of, well, why is my hospital closing? When, when you've got, got enough money to wait. do that. Yeah, and, yeah. and people have the same sense with the, with the Millennium Dome. 
There was one actually talking of things that are unlikely. Um, Piers Morgan actually said something in uh, his diaries, which are otherwise lightly fictionalised, I think, but that was a fair point about the dome, which was that the dome was doomed from the time that they invited all the newspaper editors to it on Millennium Eve and then left them stranded at like Canning Town or one of the other Jubilee Line stations for ages. And at that point, you just think, yeah, that's not getting a great write up at that yeah. point. Um, one thing I, I'm interested to know is, is, does the Deborah Mattinson book capture the real change in social attitudes over the period that she covered? Because I think when I read Harriet Harman's memoir, that really came home to me that even in the course of her political career, just how much attitudes to gay rights, for example, um, had changed, or representation of, of women and minorities in politics has changed. It's such a, a short time since pe- the majority of people thought gay marriage was kind of wrong to now people being very chill with it. Yeah, I mean, so hers is more about sort of attitudes towards the Labour government and, and the key figures. So you get this kind of weirdly partial uh, history because it's it's viewed largely through people's view of the, the leader at the time. So obviously it's a book in which things start well and end up in a very bad place. Um, my next recommendation would be um, Ali Russell Hoshtild's Strangers in Their Own Land, which is the best out of the crop of why are white people so angry books um, that came out around the time of the, the Trump election. I think uh, Hillbilly Elegy by uh, J.D. Vance is worth reading too, simply. But, I mean, it's a bit of a misery memoir, but it also kind of it talks from about somebody who ends up in a place of, uh, of republicanism, having come from a pretty hard scrabble background and then uh, having gone to the Marines and through university. And one of the things that Ali Hoshtild has said about her book is, you know, um, that J.D. Vance, you know, he was in that milieu already. She had to scale what she calls in the wall uh, in the book empathy walls because she's from you know um, California, and so she went to Louisiana, which I think is the second most, maybe the most polluted state in one, well, certainly one of the most yeah. polluted states in the U.S. And also one of the ones that is most has a large Tea Party anti-government um, strand. So her question was, she wanted to look at it through the environmental rights. And say, why do people living in a place where, and some of the stuff she describes is incredible, this, all these chemicals have been dumped in a river and everybody in this family has had suspiciously similar cancers. Or somebody who's the only house left on their block because a huge sinkhole has opened up because of people tapping into um, underground gas. And, you know, why do people who are living in, in obviously, this place that has been ruined by a lack of control on industry not want more restrictions and regulation on industry. And she does it through a couple of different things, through looking at the kind of archetype of, um, of, a, of the cowboy, right? So there's, there's one factory where people were breathing in, I think, chlorine fumes that were stripping the enamel off their teeth. And there was this kind of feeling about, yeah, but real men don't wear protection. And that kind of thing about, you know, you, you had to kind of go and prove yourself. And one of the things that proved yourself was that you weren't the kind of sort of sissy who, who, who worried about kind of, you know, dressing up in little booties and stuff like that. And also just this idea that it was a straight trade-off. If you wanted to have the oil company there, you had to put up with the environmental damage. And, and and they wouldn't ever believe that you could sometimes say to an oil company, actually, you've got to obey these regulations and the oil company would still stay with you. Um, and she also talks about this sort of parable about trying to understand kind of tea partyism about this idea of people kind of in a long queue waiting to get to the summit of a hill and you can see people as they sort of see it kind of pushing in ahead of the queue you know refugees get given a spot in the line ahead of you and that whole world view that you're working and striving in some way and some people are kind of being parachuted in over the top of you and I thought it was the it was a genuine without excusing anybody's behavior I thought it was really a genuine attempt to engage and, and connect with people who I you know instinctively have relatively little sympathy for what's your next pick my next pick 
is uh, Richard Seymour's Corbyn biography. So I have reviewed all three of the major Corbyn biographies. Rosa Prince is sort of a very good, quick biographical study. It doesn't get particularly deep into Corbyn's mind and life, and it's it's a bit tabloid, as you'd sort of expect of a quick biography. Alex Nunn's is, 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 I think, probably the most informed. It's a bit sort of insidery, and it kind of has the limitations of all insidery political works and also the strength. So it has the same problems of, say, Matthew Dancona's Cameron book. Or the Rawnsley Blair book. Or the Rawnsley Blair book, where you kind of think, wow, you've got some great access, but I kind of wish you'd ask some more probing questions. But equally, if you're going to ask probing questions, you don't get that level of access. Whereas the Richard Seymour book, it, yeah, obviously it's a... So he's sort of attacks, I was going to say, he's to the left of Corbyn, right, which is not a position you hear articulated very often. The prior he comes to it from is that you cannot achieve left-wing change through the institutions of Parliament and particularly through the institutions of the Labour Party. And so it's it's interesting because hostile would be too strong a way of putting it, but it's a sceptical look at Corbynism from the left. But, I mean, to be honest, to me, the main uh, killer app it has over the other two is partly that it has an interesting perspective, but also the prose style. It is just a wonderfully sort of punchy book. You know, it has lots of sort of great sort of lines and kind of, kind of you know, kind of sort of sneering asides about people it doesn't like on the right of the party, people it doesn't like on the left. It's just sort of a... It, it, it has, is actually a sort of political biography which genuinely does rattle along. I think if you're going to read... Well, if you're going to read one Corbyn book, you should probably read The Candidate because, by Alex Nunn because that will give you a sense of the world as viewed from the leader's office. But if you were going to read one for pleasure, I would read the Richard Seymour one. Well, talking about prose style, in that case, that's my pick for, for the best of the Brexit books, of which there are many, is uh, Tim Shippen's All Out War. Because I think it's the one that is written journalistically... And, and like you say, rattles along, but mm. has also got a kind of good interrogative look at all of the parties. And it's got lots of stuff in it that kind of the individual people have contested, but I think it's quite eye-opening about Labour's attitude to Brexit, the kind of the way that they really didn't put their shoulder, the leader's office didn't put its shoulder to the wheel because it didn't see this was a place where it really wanted to spend its political capital. And I think that's something that, you know, has become very relevant to arguments that are now happening within Labour and the left. And yeah, and it's just got some it's just got some great vignettes in it and because it's told by a journalist rather than one of the protagonists involved I don't think Tim Shipman is particularly invested in buffing anyone's reputation or kind of retrospectively justifying anyone's you know anyone's decisions everyone comes out of it quite badly I think I can't think of somebody who come out of it thinking why wow, you really covered yourself in glory there so I guess that's it. But uh, what are you actually going to be reading this summer? Well, so on, on my honeymoon, I actually read uh, A Suitable Boy. Oh, which the massive one. The massive one by Vikram Seth. I really like Vikram Seth. I mean, it's a it's a book which will both stay with you for a long time because it's it's one of because it's long, but it doesn't feel long. You don't have to. You don't have that sense of oh god, I need to refer back. But because it takes so long to read, because it's so thick, you really feel a sense of loss at the end. The ending is actually quite upbeat because you really get involved in the the family becomes such a big part of your life, and it's so beautifully written. And it is really if you if you have sort of any kind of free time over the summer, I really would recommend sort of cracking on with it because it's a brilliant brilliant book but i assume we will be discussing fiction next week we Uh, will um and we've got some special guests coming on to help us with that (laughs) 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. I'm back from holiday. I'm not doing it anymore. Okay, I'm not right. your performing seal. Um, I was going to say that was that was the thing I really missed when you were in Vancouver <laughs> was the uh, was the percussive. You ask us. Um, so it's a question about the Conservatives' desire to free themselves of the Charter of Fundamental Rights and the European Court of Justice. Is this all so they can bring back drumroll the death penalty? The birch. What about the birch? You don't know what I mean when I make the, the birch. You mean corporal punishment? I do mean corporal punishment. Yeah. Presume you're not allowed to bring that back unless you leave the ECJ either. The death penalty is one of those things which is incredibly popular, and so bringing it back immediately becomes a halitosis for any left party because it's quite difficult to persuade your activists, and rightly so, that you shouldn't commit to abolishing it. But it becomes this like sort of difficult issue. The do you think it still is really popular? What is the latest polling on it? Well, the difficulty with death penalty polling is it mostly happens immediately after a... Massive case in which some and, yeah, A nasty some, crime. Yeah. And my, my instinct is that probably slightly inflates the numbers. But I actually think the sad and slightly terrifying truth about Brexit is actually, if you want to have an interesting conversation about what happens after Brexit, you really have to talk to a left-wing Labour MP. You know, like the Lexiters, for all I still think that there are many problems with Lexit and I don't think it can work, the Lexiters are really the only group of people who I would say have a plan for Brexit in Parliament. The plan of like the bulk of Labour MPs is, oh, we'll leave, we'll have control over immigration and nothing else will change and then we'll go back to being able to talk about health, education and the economy. And it's like, no, actually, leaving the single market is quite a big deal, guys. It will fundamentally change every conversation you have. But the average Brexiteer Conservative MP, their vision of, of Brexit is to have it. And that is kind of the beginning, middle and end. They, they don't have a particularly nuanced or interesting view about what you do with trade deals. Depressingly, have them, have lots of them, yeah, have big ones. Like, I mean, depressingly, they don't like this idea that you see on the left and their vision is afterwards will become Singapore. And actually that, that dispiritingly is, is, yeah, the, the, the really, I mean, there are many reasons, I think, to be depressed about Brexit and the way it's going. But the really worrying thing is the main people pushing for it on the Tory right don't really seem to have a, a that strong an idea. Because the, the stuff about the ECJ, which is problematic from a, like, social authoritarian view, Norway's not subject to that. You don't have to be subject to the kind of social stuff, you know, if, if you don't want. The stuff which you continue to be subject to is the arbitration mechanisms over trade, flights... Which is all the stuff that would be really, really sensible to be into, right? It's one of those things that says, it does give you a slight amount of alarm thinking that did anybody in government really understand the difference between the ECHR and the ECJ when we started? Or like even by the point of last September, had that really percolated through? No, I mean, I think, so I think the interesting thing is it's, it's much easier to have a conversation, as I've said, about the EU with a Labour MP than is actually nuanced and does seem to have some understanding of how the treaties work. 
Equally, it's much easier to have a conversation with a Tory MP about the rights and wrongs of Trident. And my suspicion is that in, in both cases, really asking a Labour MP how they feel about Trident is really a proxy for asking what the politics of their local party are. Because mostly the average Labour MP's secret answer on Trident is, you know, I don't care. But when a shouty man says, whoa, will you bomb somewhere? I quite like being able to like, yep, yeah, we would. Can I please go back to talking about the things I care about now? And Brexit is a bit like that with Tory MPs. That a lot of them, basically, their opinion on Brexit is like being Eurosceptic is kind of what you've had to do to be mm. selected as a Tory MP. It's not something that most of the generation of people who are currently at the top of the Tory party have thought about very deeply or philosophically. And they kind of have a sort of emotional and cultural objection to the institutions of the EU. Yeah, there is. A, there should be a kind of word for those issues. That I guess they they are kind of touchstone issues that actually just are so hot and controversial in your party that most people try to say the minimum possible because they just, you know, they want to reduce the flack that they get. The New Statesman podcast is hosted by me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush. We are produced by India Bork and mixed by James Shields. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. New Statesman contributing writer Laurie Penny is in conversation with the new Shikalian who was filling in for me while I was lording it with the elk in Canada. You can still find tickets for that at Waterstones Piccadilly at newstatesman.com forward slash events. See you next week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.